It's time for the Contempo Coding Podcast. Discussions, knowledge, and insight to help you succeed in the medical coding industry. And now, here's your host, Victoria. Hey there, coding crew. Welcome to episode seven of the podcast. It is September 4th of 2020, and I'm very happy to announce that we have a guest on the podcast today. Elizabeth Burke is a medical coder specializing in DRG validation audits. We met back in March of 2019 while she was presenting for my chapter in Allentown, and her presentation was just so amazing that I still get comments from members about how uh, impactful it was to them. And she has a fantastic story about how she got into medical coding. And you guys know I love, I love a good, interesting how I became a medical coder story. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Elizabeth Burke. So today on the podcast, I have Elizabeth Burke. Now, Elizabeth is here because she does a lot of work with DRG validations, and I've had some questions in regards to that. And Elizabeth and I, I believe we met, oh my gosh, I can't remember if it was one year ago or two years ago, but you were talking to my local chapter, you'd offered to come and speak and you were talking about uh, privacy regulations and kind of domestic versus international privacy regulations. And I specifically remember you, you came and I greeted you at the building and you go, oh, you know, I brought with me Mark and Rich. Do you know Mark and Rich? And I went, I don't, I don't think I've met these gentlemen before. And then as we were walking I'm like, this, they seem familiar, but I just can't place it. And then I went, oh my God, it's LinkedIn. These are the guys from Coders Direct. And, you, and, and that's when I started to, to recognize it. And you did a wonderful, wonderful uh, presentation that was absolutely, absolutely amazing. But I hear that you got a pretty good backstory about how you got into the medical coding industry. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you started out and how you started getting into medical coding? Uh, yes, that is so interesting. And we'll have to go ahead and tell Mark and Rich that uh, they're now also podcast famous because I know they loved coming with me to your chapter for that speaking engagement. Those guys are the best. I, they are just, they're doing really amazing things for coders in the industry. I've been friends with them for a couple of years now, and I can't say enough good things about Mark Simon and Rich Sloiter at Coders Direct. Yeah. <clears throat> so I... Uh, came into coding, I slid through the back door, kind of as a mistake. I graduated from college, I'm gonna date myself, I am 41, I graduated from college 20 years ago, Westchester University, with a bachelor's degree in sociology. And I wasn't super psyched, I mean, what do you do with a bachelor's degree in sociology? It's like, I call it my bachelor's degree in obscurity, uh, but I, I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see the country. I'm going to travel. So I moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I ended up getting into the field of social work. So I worked at a bad kids ranch in Wyoming with uh, juvenile delinquents, knuckleheads. It was a residential facility. And I found myself... After that job in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I was hired as a victim witness advocate for their police department. So I found myself very quickly caught up in the world of social work. And when I worked for the victim witness department or the, the victim witness coordinator, 
uh, for the police department, it was mostly victims of domestic violence and rape. So we would spend a lot of time in court. We would spend a lot of time coordinating the administration and storage of rape kits along with the police officers. It was really interesting work. And I lived just south of Yellowstone National Park. So we would also handle violent sexual crimes that occurred in the park. Oh, my gosh. It was a it was a very interesting job. And I actually can't believe someone gave me that job when I was 22. Like. It was, it, emotionally, it was, a, it was actually a really, really intense thing to deal with. And I remember thinking, well, I like social work and I've always been really passionate about women and women's issues. And I was happy, but I suspected that uh, it was always going to be a struggle financially to, to yeah. stay in this career. Yeah. So now, just let me ask you real quick. Wednesday, did, did you feel intimidated a lot being that young and working in that kind of environment? I was definitely in over my head and managed to, I, I had a mentor who was really good and our police chief was a woman. So I had these, these people around me to mentor me. Okay. But what was really difficult was we would, part of my job was we would do death notification. So if, someone died on vacation in Yellowstone National Park, we would, and, and it would happen. You know, people would get hit by drunk drivers crossing the road. There would be people falling to death. So whether it was a crime or not, oh it was my office that would contact their family and notify them that their loved one has died. And, and then yeah. if, if there was a crime, if it was, well, they were hit by a drunk driver, the driver is in custody, we then coordinate bringing the family to the community for the prosecution of the criminal, we would make sure that the victim's family had access to everything that they needed to have. So we would pay for hotel rooms. Uh, The victim witness fund in the state of Wyoming would pay for flights and certain living expenses so that they could go through the criminal justice process. And then they would also, we could bring them back for bail hearings or they could make victim impact statements so it was very, it was intense and it, it was intimidating. And I just remember at, at 23 or 24 saying, I can't, I'm not a lifer. And, you know, the, the next step would have been to get my master's in social work. And I just remember standing on that precipice of going back to grad school and thinking to myself, I just don't know if I see myself doing this when I'm 40 or 50. And I moved back home to Pennsylvania to be closer to family. I had had my adventure out West and it was an amazing life affirming experience. that will always be with me. I came back home, worked for the district attorney's office in Allentown. Actually, I lived in Sailorsburg. So I was in your neck of the woods and, uh, it was, I, I just remember thinking, I've got to find something else to do. So I would at night go on jobs. I'm like, well, hospitals are always hiring doctor's offices. I'll do something in healthcare. I'll go be a secretary. I'll figure it out. I was in my early 20s. The world was my oyster. I was like, I'm just going mm-hmm. to figure this out. I didn't have kids or anything. So I had the freedom to do that. Yeah. And 
I'm looking because I have a background in social work. I'm looking at all the social work and counselor positions and I'm not qualified for them because I don't have a master's degree. And there's all these positions for this thing called medical coding. And I mean, just pages and pages, medical coder, medical coder one, medical coder two, inpatient medical coder. I'm like, what is this? This is, this is weird. So I Google medical coding and come to the AAPC website and find out that locally where I live next week starts an AAPC CPC prep course. Oh, wow. So I'm like, I know. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go to that thing and I'm going to spend, I remember the first class, including the book was $245. And I was like, I'm going to blow the $245. I don't even know what this thing is, but I'm just going to go. I'm going to sit in this room with, and I'm going to learn what this is. And I, it was at a technical school. It was at a local technical school at night. And I remember I walked in, I had a book and it said ICD-9 on the cover. I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I opened it. None of it made any sense. I was like, well, someone will explain to me what's in this. And I sat down and went to that first class and it was the start of the, the rest of my professional life. Yeah. I was in a room with nine other women because we, we know it's a, it's a chick heavy environment. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Nine other women a great instructor. And I just kept on showing up and learning how to use this book. And then I mastered that book, this ICD-9 book. And they said, there's another class. Give us another $245. And here's a book called a CPT book. And you're going to learn how to use this book. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense either. But by the end of the nine or 10 weeks, I knew how to use that book. So I said, well, I don't know what to do now. Is there another class? They said, yep, this is a Hicks Picks book. Learn how to use this book. <laughs> so I learned Hicks Picks coding and, and they said, uh, I said, all right, what's next? They said, well, something called evaluation management and you're going to learn how to, I know, I don't miss that at all. Um, <laughs> you know, you're going to learn how to score what a physician has done in a visit. And I said, okay. And when, then when that was done, they said, well, all of you, it's time to sit for your CPC. Well, I, ha I wasn't working in the industry. I was still a social worker. Mm -hmm. So I could only sit for my CPCA. So I sat for my CPCA with my class. We all went out for margaritas after <laughs> the test. And they were the, I could still name all these women. They're just, it was the greatest group of people. And while I was waiting for the results of my test, I wrote this resume that said, like, I have all this experience as a social worker, but also I know how to read, like, an ICD and CPT book. And St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem offered me my first job. Hmm. And before my results came back, I had just told them about my coursework, went in, did the interview. They had hired me. It was it was a different time. It was, it was the threshold to entry into the field wasn't what it is now. And I think it's important to acknowledge that for people who are trying to break into the field now. It was just, it was much easier. And this is around 2003, 2004. So we're talking 16 years ago. Yeah, the market wasn't quite as saturated, I think, back then. Yeah, it was before social media. It was mm -hmm. before, you know, it was just, 
it was really easy to find a position. So I worked for this hospital and it was so excited because number one, off the bat, it was like a $17,000 pay increase. Ooh, wow. I, it was, I mean, social work is just, it is for yeah. people who just truly have a heart of service. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'll tell you, I don't know that that was me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, was, I liked it. It was, it was great, but it wasn't where my heart was ever going to be. Uh, and I identified that pretty early on. So, you know, coding, I was just like, well, I'm, I'm going to do this for a little while. This seems great. Mm -hmm. And I worked for an outpatient interventional cardiologist. I would code EKGs off of um, index cards with stickers on them. I mean, yep. like that. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. It, it was, I mean, it was all legitimate. Like, and then I would look it up in the computer and I would write the code on the index card and put it in a pile for the biller to tap into the system. Mm -hmm. And it was. It, it was definitely a different time because I don't think that's happening anymore. <laughs> yeah, occasionally. I think there are still some providers walking around with index cards uh, in their lab coats. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then from there, I got a little bit of experience and got another job at a level one trauma facility in central Pennsylvania. And I was there for eight years. Now, that's where I came to learn about DRG coding. So I was still... I was, I was doing it and I was happy and I, it was fun and exciting. I liked putting puzzles together. I liked reading medical records. I liked the organization of, of information, the health information management. I never went to school for that. I had no background in it. So I learned all of it on the job and just thought it was, I was like, this is great. This, this is the organization of this. This is a massive amount of information. Here's how it's all categorized. So I sat, I was an outpatient float for this hospital. And one day someone said, um, hey, uh, do you want to learn how to, how to code DRGs? Do you want to be a DRG coder? And I said, well, I don't know what that is. But um, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. And they said, yeah, we, uh, you're going to leave. I, I worked with all the pro fee coders. And they said, there's another coding department in the hospital. You're going to go get all your stuff off your desk. You're going to go live with them now. And I was like, there are no other coders. This is it. This is all coding is. And they were like, no, we're yep. telling you. <laughs> they were like, just get your crap and get in the elevator. Let's go. I'm like, all right. So yeah, know, it's a course. whole other world, whole mm -hmm. other world. So I went down and in the same day, someone mentioned this to me. I'm walking into health information management in a completely different part of this massive hospital. And here's all of these people. I had no idea they existed. I didn't know what they did. They were lovely. They were, they were very friendly. Here's your desk. Uh, welcome, you know, welcome to the coding department. And I was like, well, this isn't the coding department, but okay. Uh, the coding department's up in the annex. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they said, no, 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 this is going to be great. We're going to send you to Philadelphia for a week to go to an HC Pro coding boot camp, and you're going to learn how to, how to do this. And I said, okay. Um, I still just, I, I didn't even know what a DRG was, but I just, I was game, you know, I was sure I'll, I'll go do this. Yeah. And I went to this HC Pro Coding Bootcamp where, again, I'm going to, I don't know if they still teach this way, but it was an amazing way to learn. We coded DRGs out of books. We had a big, we had like three big books, hardcover books, smaller than ICD and CPT books. 
And they were like Bibles and you would have to find chronic conditions in them and match them up with, you know, MCCs, match it up with a principal diagnosis. And you had to by hand calculate a DRG, which is like telling a carpenter to put a house together with scotch tape. Like I had... I always tell people I could not calculate a DRG if my life depended on it. I don't know anything about DRGs. I know it's different now, I guess, than it used to be because of the changes from ICD-9 to ICD-10. But inpatient coding has always been very intimidating to me. And it seems like it's just so much more complex because I, as a professional fee coder, when a provider says that the patient has sepsis, I'm like, yep, that's all I need that you you just say they have sepsis and they have sepsis. But my Mm -hmm. understanding is with DRGs, it's more like you have to validate based off of the clinical data that it's actually sepsis. Right. No, that's exactly right. So if they're saying sepsis, we're looking at labs, we're looking at the C-reactive protein, we're looking at white blood cells, we're watching vitals. Is the patient hypotensive? Do they have a fever? Uh, Is their respiratory rate changed? Because if any of those things aren't there, that does present a potential issue with the coding of that condition. So we do go in and clinically validate things. It's one of those windows that opens for you where you can become really, you're like just knowledgeable enough to know a little bit about medicine and the administrative, but not enough to real like you're not doctor and nurse, but it's, it is funny because, you know, I would, sometimes I'm like, well, let me see your labs. And someone's like, I want to show you my labs. Let me see your, what your creatinine was. And they're like, stop, you are not a doctor. I'm like, that's true. I'm not, I'll shut up. So, you know, but you do, you, you learn the, the data paints a picture for you. And the longer you spend in DRG coding, the more you get it. And another amazing thing about DRG coding, and I think you could say the same thing for outpatient. It's just that I didn't spend enough time in profi coding. The professionals in DRG coding are so approachable are so friendly. We've all been there where you are just staring at a chart and you can't begin to make sense of what you're looking at and you need someone to help you unpack everything. We can always depend on each other. Every job I've had, I've had really responsive, compassionate people who are always willing to step in and to say, hey, let me, let me, give you my perspective or have you looked at this and they'll, they'll prompt you to look at a lab result or uh, an imaging result that you didn't look at before to try to, to figure out what's going on. So there, there are people I've found a lot of my successes in the people that I've, that I've worked with and learned so much from, you know, I learn almost every day from the people that I work with because you know, it, and I, I think it's probably the same for Profi, but in DRG coding, you are always seeing something you haven't seen before. You know, you never, it feels like you can never reach that like expert top video game score. <laughs> There's always so much more to learn, always. It's an exciting thing. Great. So then my next question for you is a few months back, I made this video about 
uh, six-figure medical coding, and it got a lot of really great responses. And I talked about the reality of it, that this isn't typically a job people get into with the intent of making six figures, but there are some select opportunities out there. and There are types of coding that do pay more than other types of coding. And I mentioned about DRG validation, and that that is usually one that is a little bit higher paid. So can you share just a little bit more about what your job entails and then how you've maximized your income doing DRG validations? Yes. So in as far as I understand it, DRG quality audits and DRG validation are the highest paying professions in the field right now. Interventional radiology might be an exception. I've heard a lot about it. I've talked to a lot of recruiters that say that those people are in in uh, in great demand and that's a really I've heard complicated, the same. Yeah. It's a really complicated position, but I don't know anything about interventional radiology. I know as far as DRG coding, is it possible to get to $100,000 a year? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I know a dozen people who are there easily. I mean, that's like an underestimation. Once a level of acumen is achieved, once you are productive and responsive and you have a decent track record behind you, it, it is very easy to get within shooting distance of $100,000. So maybe you're at $85,000, but you pick up some PRN work on the side, coding for, you know, your friend's consulting firm. I know some of the work I do on the side, I write and grade coding tests for a friend of mine who, who has coders. And, you know, it's, it's just a great little thing to do on the side. Occasionally the work gets filtered to me, you know, I do it, I give my opinion and then it's their, their easy billable hours uh, opportunities like that exist. What is important is a willingness to get out into the contract world at that point. So an organization, if you're with the same hospital or a well-established organization, I haven't found and I haven't heard of a lot of growth within coding and within auditing in organizations. Your best bet is to hop on over to a different company and get to know the field. Now, contract coding, I went into it in 2014, right before the 2000, the ICD-10 uh, came out. So they were, it was the money was kind of like ridiculous and they would give, they were offering $60 an hour without a coding test. Like oh you could gosh. just like spell the word code. And they, it was, <laughs> I was like, this cannot be sustainable. Like this seems, And it wasn't sustainable. That bubble burst. Yeah. And, um, but I, I have found now, again, I can only speak from my own perspective as a DRG coder that, our rates have stayed in the same range since then. You know, you'll find companies that'll offer a little lower, you'll find companies that offer a little higher, but you do have to be willing to be in that contractor space. You have to be comfortable talking to recruiters and taking their calls. I think when you're in the contract space, the most important thing is even when you're working, always take a recruiter's phone calls, always. Uh, because you never yeah. know if you know someone that they can work for, that can work mm -hmm. for them. If you can make, a, I've made so many referrals that have gone through and have gotten people's jobs because they keep in touch with almost every coder I've worked with in contract mm -hmm. coding. 
And I always take recruiters calls. So if I have a friend who's a DRG coder who's out of work, which a DRG coder, auditor, or validator, in my experience, they're generally not out of work very well. They get snatched up pretty quick. So especially when they're seasoned enough that day one on the job, they're they have worked across multiple medical records. They might need some tweaks to make sure that they're compliant with the way that that facility wants to do things, but mm-hmm. they're generally ready to go on day one. And, and you know, it takes, a, it takes a little while to get there, but it's absolutely achievable. And I think if you really, really, if a coder really applies themselves, it can be achievable within five years of starting the career. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that's one of the questions that I get too now from follow up with that is that coders are well, oh, is DRG validation like something I can do right out of the bat, like for as a new coder? No, no, no. Okay. Well, if if you're, I would say, not validation. No, you because it really does take some time and exposure to get into these records. And if you can find a nice, secure, it might be a little bit, you know, hospitals, some of them might tend to pay a little bit lower, but if you can get in at a level one trauma facility, because you know, you're going to see everything that comes through that door from basic newborns, born healthy, going home on day three to, you know, serious traumas and and NICU stays that go for six or seven months, you, you'll, you'll be exposed to all of it. So that's, that's where I learned. I was there for eight years. It doesn't necessarily have to take you eight years. It took me that long. But I know people who have done it in a much shorter period of time, and they're amazing validators. So I think it's really unique to everyone. And then another thing I want to add about the $100,000 mark, it it can sound like such a, it has such a ring to it, six figures. Yeah. But, Victoria, there is an agency and they're called the IRS. And it doesn't <laughs> always make sense to make $100,000. If someone's yeah. in a really good position and they feel respected and they have the things that are important to them, whether it's resources, whether it's schedule flexibility, or a really compassionate understanding patient boss, you know, and they're at 80,000, you know, the IRS, uh, it, the IRS website has calculators, you know, check, check out whether it would be worth your while to gamble with a new position because you may not, maybe you will achieve that, that level, but it might not be worth it to you. And I think right now, Oh, and also I should probably say that I am not qualified to give anyone tax advice. <laughs> but <laughs> anything that, that I, I have seen the 2020 tax brackets and the income tax brackets and eight, at 85,000, you start being taxed at 24 point, no, it's just 24%. So you're going to be paying a higher tax rate on, those do- on every dollar you make over the 85,000. You have to do the math and figure out what's right for you and what's wrong for you. And, you know, are there benefits included? Can you put money in a 401k to bring your taxable income down? You know, making yeah. more money on paper doesn't always equal more cash in your bank account. So it's, it's something uh, where you might, a coder might feel just, or even a validator or an auditor, really, really, really happy and content at twenty or $30,000 less than that and decide that, well, hey, like it's it's great here. 
gonna, I'm going to stay here and, and know that it's always an option, but uh, it shouldn't be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is how happy and fulfilled you are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I make the comparison, like the real estate market is booming right now and I could make a ton of money getting into real estate, but I don't really enjoy real estate. So the (laughs) fact that the money would be good is not, is not worth it to me to make that extra because I'm more interested in medical coding. Now, the, I, the other thing that I really like that you brought up was about taking on additional jobs, because I think mm-hmm. that's something that has really come forward during this pandemic is the promotion of having additional side income or a little additional income streams to kind of help supplement so that if you're in a situation where you might suddenly lose your job, you still have a little bit of money coming in. So I think that's a, an excellent tip to kind of take some of those extra projects on the side. And the more that you network, the more those can kind of come your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I find, I mean, I just, I'm an extrovert. So I really like, I'll always take a recruiter's call. You know, I, even if, and if it's not, sometimes it's the same company, but a different recruiter, that's never a waste of time because that, your name's in a database somewhere. And I swear somewhere in that database, it says like, this chick will pick up the phone if you call. (laughs) And I think a lot of people, when they're not looking for jobs, they just, they, they tune recruiters out, but you definitely want to nurture that relationship because there's, it almost always leads to somewhere, whether it's you referring a friend or a colleague or you ending up being laid off or losing your job for whatever reason you took, if you took that organization's calls when you were working they will probably reciprocate and take your call. So it's just, it's, and it's, you know, it's not about leveraging your network. I hear all of these things on LinkedIn where it really dehumanizes people. It's you're nurturing relationships and you're making connections and you're connecting people uh, like Mark and Rich that you could call them that they would do anything for anybody, you know, but even just like networking, if you called them and asked, they would give you their time. They would yeah. hook you up with resources because you met them at a, at a meeting where I was speaking, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's chances to reach out to people. And I used to mentor through Ahima and I don't anymore because I, I just don't have the time, but I used to uh, say to people, if you're an introvert, just let every couple months ping them with an email, just send an email. You know, if you don't want to pick up the phone when they call, there are other ways that you can nurture that relationship and that you can stay in touch in a meaningful way that will help nurture the connection. Uh, They know your name, you know theirs, and maybe you can be of mutual beneficial help to each other in the future. So it's- Yeah, and I I think it's important to make the appropriate connections, to make the worthwhile or valuable connections, not just collect connections for the sake of having a wide network. So for example, I'll get on LinkedIn requests from people who are nearby that sell hot tubs. Well, chances are good. The reason they're trying to connect to me is because they want to sell me a hot tub, not because (laughs) there's going to be any kind of (laughs) beneficial connection going on that they're going to need me to come in and do work for them or, or, you know, Uh, help me out in any way. So going back then to DRG validations, are there any specific roadblocks that you've kind of encountered or that someone who's getting into DRG validation might have to look out for? It's hard 
to say because I've, I've been so lucky and I, you know, it's really interesting. You sh- whenever you listen to someone's story, you should always have in the back of your mind that that's not the whole truth, right? I've always had the wind at my back in my career. And I've always had people standing there opening a door for me and saying, Elizabeth, would you like this opportunity? And I'm like, well, yes, I would. Thank you. And then I walk through the door. I've, I've been so incredibly, inc- I've been so lucky. They have nothing to complain about. And I, I didn't hit any serious roadblocks, but I think it was because I, t- I also moved very slowly. You know, when I, when I had that first job, I stayed there for eight years and I, you know, when I, I, and then I stayed as a coder in the contract world for an additional four or five. It took me a long time to get into the validation auditing space. So, uh, you know, it's that old saying, things either cost you time or money. So I think I, you know, I didn't run into any of that because I was slow and steady as she goes. What other people did in five years, it did in 16, <laughs> you know, so I, I didn't really, I had a really organic growth. I had really good opportunities. I think that DRG, you just always have to be willing to accept that even with all your experience, you just did that completely wrong. Like there's always, and I think that's coding in general. There's, yeah. you, you know, you have to be willing to accept feedback and you have to be willing to be really professional with your peers when you disagree with them. Um, the one thing I have a rule about coding feedback and that is no rubber bullets. So in my entire career, I've never accepted a vague criticism of my work from someone. And, and that's something that I think this career can lend itself to. You know, every day we log into our computers and we take an eight hour test. That's basically, that's what coding is. You take an eight hour test, you do it as productively and as accurately as you can, but we're human and we make mistakes. And if you're a conscientious hard worker with good ethics, you realize, God, you know, I hope I didn't make a bad mistake. It's always kind of in the back of your mind. And Mm -hmm. when someone comes up to you and says something vague and in the past, earlier in my career, I would have someone say, well, I have concerns about your quality. And my response to that was always, okay, I'm, I'm going to need specifics. So I'm going to need like a spreadsheet. I'm going to need exactly the mistake I made so that I don't make it again. Or if, it's, if I don't feel it's a mistake, I'd like to at least explain my coding rationale so that we can come to some kind of agreement. It's always a learning opportunity, but to just to generally make a blanket statement about the quality of a coder's work I think is incredibly harmful and it's something that I've never let in. Um, I actually had a manager once tell me literally sat behind her desk and said, well, you you suck. And I I couldn't. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I just remember thinking I'm going to need, I'm going to need some more information. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so it's, you know, it's, that's why, and I call them rubber bullets. I'm going to, I'm going to trademark the term and write a book (laughs) (laughs) because it's just, it's just kind of testing to see how thick the ice is with someone. And it can be really hurtful and really demoralizing. And that as I think is something that all coders kind of 
have to find their way with is you're not always going to get perfect feedback and you're not always going to uh, have, have be completely seen in your opinion and in your coding rationale. And that's your chance to stand up and say, I, you know, I'm concerned about what you just said because you've hired me to do a job. You've insinuated that now I can't do it. And I, I need to talk about the details around that because I take the quality of my work very seriously. Did that answer your question? I feel like I went off on a tangent. It did. And I think that gave some really good advice for people that are potentially looking to get into DRG validation as well. I think as coders, we we need to develop thicker skin. We do tend to think we just do everything correctly. And it's very shocking when you find out that someone is disagreeing with something because we pride ourselves in having accuracy. And when, when someone comes by and says, no, you did this wrong, it like, it takes your breath away a little bit. Like I did. (laughs) (laughs) I will do the wrong thing with a shocking amount of enthusiasm and regularity. Like I will do the wrong thing all day long until I'm corrected, which is why I love the audit process. I, you know, and I'll remember, I'll be coding something and I will remember getting dinged on it for an audit 10 years ago. I'm like, oh, not this time, flew it over. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know, it's just, it, I think audits are really valuable. They're not something to fear. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully you're in a nurturing organization, which also sees auditing opportunities as chances to improve and mm-hmm. to educate as opposed to being punitive measures and pointing out where people fall short. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, one of the big focuses is we want to identify where our risks are and make sure that we correct those areas where we may have risks that maybe we didn't do something appropriately and we want to fix it before it becomes a bigger problem. So just talking in generally about risk, I want to shift to a little bit about, and this will be my last question, just about privacy regulations, because that's kind of how we met, was talking about privacy regulations. And with this pandemic, we've now been very suddenly forced into the situation where now people who were working in offices are now rushed. They're, they're working from home and it was just this quick snap decision and people are working on couches and in living rooms with laptops and family going by. So I'm just curious, like given this nature of this, what is your prop, your top privacy concern with everything that's happened with this sudden rush to work from home? My top privacy concern is access to medical records that is being given to people who are not accountable to HIPAA. So HIPAA does not have extraterritorial reach, which means that citizens of other countries which are accessing medical records that are for healthcare providers in the United States are not accountable to HIPAA laws. If you or I, Victoria, walked out our front door and started selling social security numbers. We would absolutely be done in our career. We're, we're violating. Right. I mean, it's the, we would never work again. We would be spending time in prison. We would be personally liable. We could lose our house and we can be sued in civil court as well as criminal court. The impetus for us to not do that is very high. Even if we were corrupt and, and had a tendency towards the black market, it's just, it, it wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. This is the case in other countries. And 
what concerns me with a rush to work from home is that number one, everyone should be safe and their humanity should be respected. So I don't agree with any business anywhere packing people into anything that resembles a call center. And we know that some of the offshore locations operate like that. People are in very Mm -hmm. close quarters. They're watched very closely. I think it's unethical to ask those people to work in conditions which can make them sick. No one deserves that. Is the alternative that citizens of another country are accessing full medical records of foreign data subjects, which is what United States citizens are in their homes? I'm concerned about that. I don't know what the recourse is if we know what the recourse is if social security numbers walk out our front door. We, I work remotely. If social security numbers walk out the front door of a house located in another country, is it a crime? Number one. And is there any way to stop that flow of information if there's a problem? If there, and, and maybe it's, it's not the coder, but maybe it's someone in their household. Maybe it's someone in their community. How secure are network, uh, Wi-Fi, and different, I mean, I, I don't know how the infrastructure in, in any place but the United States works. So, you know, I don't know, but... I know that to pack people into a foreign call center is unethical. It's unethical at this stage in the game. So if to keep mm-hmm. that business model running, people are going home with full access to hospitals, electronic medical records, yeah. I would be, I would have a lot of questions about that. I would have a lot of questions about what exactly the areas of vulnerability are because ultimately all of the vulnerability and for me that's what it's always been about is the patients they are the precious thing and not only their humanity but also in the amount of data that is collected and you know patients don't own their medical their medical records it belongs to the hospital belongs to the facility and the patient becomes at that point a data subject and mm-hmm. the medical record becomes the intellectual property of the facility that gathered it. And it does leave patients in a really vulnerable spot, both domestically and in a foreign way. And the thing that concerns me with a foreign workforce is that we don't have HIPAA to fall back on, like you do with the United States workforce. Yeah. So yeah. I don't... And I think we definitely have our own risk areas. I mean, you see all kinds of things on the area in the on the internet. People posting pictures that facilities closed down, and the medical records are just sitting in piles out where the closed facility is, and they're blowing in the wind. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the 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 points of vulnerability are domestically as well. Absolutely, yes. Uh, in the United States, though, it it is illegal. So that, yeah. that is one layer of protection where it, it isn't in certain other places. 
Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been a really, I think, insightful interview, and I'm sure the listeners are going to really appreciate that you came on the podcast today to kind of talk to me about DRG validations and all that stuff, because I've just gotten so many, so many questions about it. So thank you so much, Elizabeth, for for being here today. Well, thank you for having me, Victoria. I have nothing but respect for everything you do, and I'm so proud of all the great work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So that was my interview with Elizabeth Burke. So amazing. I always love, like I said, a good how I became a medical coder story. And that was just very wonderful and just such great information about how to maximize uh, your revenue as a coder and just build and build and build. And I think Elizabeth is an amazing success story in that regard. In this episode, we touched a little bit about Mark and Rich from Coders Direct. I do have the job boards for Coders Direct on my website at contempocoding.com. You can check them out there. They have so many amazing listings for jobs for medical coders, and they put out newsletters. Connect with them on LinkedIn because they have just job postings. all over all the time that they're posting that the companies are reaching out to them to help recruit for coding positions. It's a great way. I personally know quite a few coders that have found their jobs from codersdirect.com. So check them out. Check out the job boards of codersdirect.com that I have on my website too. And I hope you have a great weekend. Everyone just keep on coding on.